Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Bold, Beautiful Borderline podcast. My name is Lori Edmondson, and I'm here with my good friend, Sarah Edmondson. And we are going to be talking today about mood swings, which is one of the symptoms of borderline personality disorder and arguably most obvious one that people associate with BPD. So, Sarah, you picked this topic today. (laughs) You start. Okay, let me just ask you this. How many people in your life tried to self-diagnose you with bipolar disorder when you were younger? Oh, uh, actually, so lots, but like, because I think I was, I studied psychology from like grade nine till whenever, like, well now. So like, I think I kind of always was like, no, bipolar is two weeks on, two weeks off. And I did get like officially assessed by a psychiatrist when I was a kid. And they like said, you're for sure not bipolar. And the reason for that was obviously because my like mood shifts were within minutes, not weeks. Um, But yeah, I totally, you too, I assume. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, isn't that like classic? (laughs) So yeah, the reason I asked is I feel like everybody with borderline has at some point had a parent or a family member or a doctor suggest that they're bipolar. And I was, yeah, 17 probably when someone's really sat me down and said like, you know, I think you could have bipolar disorder and I think we should probably look into this and yada, yada. And I went to my pediatrician because I was underage at the time. And I said, I think someone told me that they think I have bipolar disorder, you know, whatever. And he just said, well, let's just put you on Prozac and see what happens because if you truly have bipolar disorder, Prozac would put you into your first manic episode. And we tried that and sure as shit, no mania. Yeah. That's kind of a weird way of diagnosing that, but okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah. That was like a right to the point kind of, kind of experiment. But um, yeah, I mean, so that is the thing that people with borderline experience is this rapid cycling of mood, right? I mean, I could go from like joy to anger to sadness all over again in a seven minute period and like profound experiences of joy and sadness. Yeah. Not like, oh, I feel a little bit sad. No, I'm so sad that I want to die, for example. And then the next minute I'm super lovey and just want to talk to my friends. Like it's Honestly, it's probably the most frustrating symptom of borderline for me. Uh, Yeah, I think it was probably the most, most like frustrating for sure, because it's very, very, very hard to control it. And so you can go to dialectical behavior therapy and learn all the skills. That's really great. And I've definitely learned to not outwardly put my emotion and, you know, turn it into anger, but I think that I kind of still feel these things and feel the intense emotions. I just am like better at kind of keeping them under control. Yeah. It's not the most frustrating symptom for me, but I can say 100% without a doubt, it's the most frustrating symptom for close people in my life. I don't know how Mm -hmm. Aaron feels about this, but I know I remember watching Tori just be like, dude, I don't know what to do for you. Like, it doesn't matter what I do. You just keep cycling. And she just was like, I can't keep up with this. And I remember just watching her like, I'd be like, 
in a few minutes of wanting to die and then I'd be back at joy and on her face you could just see she's like emotion emotionally processing me wanting to die and she's just so distraught and I'm like wait we're, we're we've moved on from that I want to live again right yeah yeah I think for Aaron I mean I don't want to speak for him and I definitely plan on making him come on this podcast at some point but for me it's probably a combination of this and anger that's the most frustrating and in that sense it's like because I get kind of like stuck circularly in anger or anxiety or whatever that emotion is like that loop will kind of stick and I think that that's really frustrating because I can't just like kind of get over the feelings necessarily right away or like in a normal quote normal set of time yeah yeah I can truly say nothing about any of this feels very normal and I know that you know that was one of the things I remember as a really young person like grade school was I could watch and observe my friends having feelings and riding them out and then moving on in a way that seemed so predictable across all of their behavior. And then my behavior was just so different. It was like, I would shoot up really high and then shoot down really low and then up really high and really low. And I do this so many times throughout the day and they would all just kind of be in this like nice one up or down standard deviation from the mean. And I'm like, you know, plus 12 yeah. minus 13. <laughs> I kind of love that like standard deviation because that's exactly what it is. I don't know what my baseline is, but I can tell you that my baseline is like, I'm rarely at it. Let's just say that. I mean, obviously like as I've kind of been more in recovery, it's a lot better, but I mean, I'm sure there were years of my life where I didn't have a baseline. Everything was an anomaly and it just like never was in the middle. Yeah. Okay. So then tell me this, what's the impact of it for you? Because for me, I like, I mean, and I really believe I could never return to like a nine to five employment setting where I have to be in an office or something, because in the first few hours of my day, I could cycle so many times. Like I have to either exercise or nap by like 1 PM every day. Yeah. I I feel the napping one. Napping's like my number one coping mechanism. Well, I mean, I do work a nine to five and I'm lucky that in my current employment and my previous employments, it's been pretty flexible. Like, you know, if I, if I text my manager and say, Hey, I need to sleep in today. She's not going to be mad at me as long as I don't have meetings or whatever. It's usually fine. I, I don't know. I think for me, it's probably hardest on my friends in terms of like, they don't know what to predict and then also, and in, in my friends, I count Aaron as well. And then also just, I think it's so distressing for me to not be able to stop that rapid cycling. Like there's been, I can't even count hundreds of thousands of times where I'm like, I just want to feel nothing or I want to feel normal. Like I don't want to be this angry. I don't want to be this excited. It sucks. Yeah. I think the one thing that you and I can really identify with each other on is that we both get really, really angry. Like anger, anger is a big part of our experience with BPD. And I do find that to be the most distressing as well. 
Yeah. It's just like, what, what the fuck are you supposed to do with it? You know, that's the part where it's like, I can tolerate the sadness and the joy for the most part. Um, and I can tolerate noticing that my experience is a whole lot different than other people's or far from normal, but the anger just gets me. Yeah. I think I get stuck in the anger more than I get stuck in any other emotion. I mean, I'm always going to have intense emotions and I'm totally okay with that. Like I think about things like when I go to Cirque du Soleil, for example, I weep. Like I weep the entire time. We went to a Harry Potter thing in England a couple years ago. And I love Harry Potter if everybody doesn't know that already. And I literally got into the parking lot and I just was weeping. And But it was out of happiness. Like I wasn't sad. I was just like, this is the greatest day of my life. And so I'm so happy for those moments where it's like, I'm so much more excited and so much more like overwhelmed by happiness than anybody else around me. And I look like a freak, but I don't really care. But when it comes to like, I think for me, sadness, I do get stuck in as well. Usually naps fix that. <laughs> like I, I love a good nap, but like, I will definitely get stuck in like, this is never going to end. Why am I here? And then it starts kind of spiraling into that suicidal type thinking but anger is the most frustrating one. Whereas sadness, you're like, meh, whatever. I'm over it. I'm just sad. Yeah. I'm just sad. Um, okay. Can we just like pause two things? One, three years ago, Tori and I went to Harry Potter world in Florida and I was so excited. I, I sabotaged the entire experience. Like I couldn't even handle my excitement. And I remember like, I was, Oh my God. <sighs> Tori's probably so glad she's divorcing me. I remember that was inappropriate <laughs> humor just for anybody listening. I was like, let's not go there yet. Let's wait until the papers are signed. But anyways. Um, yeah, that was maladaptive. Uh, we were at Harry Potter World. I was so excited, so overwhelmed. And I wanted to take a selfie and she wouldn't take a selfie in front of the castle with me. And I just like lost my shit. I like stormed out of the park, just like crying hysterically. I was like, so upset. That's the worst. Yeah. 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 Totally. And the thing is, is like to again, quote normal people, they're probably like, dude, why are you so fucking excited? This is the part that's confusing to me. It's like, why does taking this one picture like mean this much to you? And it's like, this is the best day of your life. That's how I'm feeling. Like whatever that is, that's how I feel right now. So like, think about how you would feel on the best day of your life. And maybe even times that emotion by 10. I don't know. Probably more like 30. Okay. The other part of this is what house are you sorted into? Cause we've never had this conversation. <laughs> So like, weirdly, I don't really care about houses. I know I'm, I'm the worst Harry Potter fan. Like I'm literally in my office right now at home looking at an Albus Dumbledore, Dumbledore quote on my wall. And like, I'm obsessed with Harry Potter, but I just don't really know. Like, I, I feel like what happened probably is like, I was on Pottermore a million years ago and I like got a house I didn't like. So I just locked it out. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. <laughs> so like, all of my Harry Potter costumes and all that stuff are all either Gryffindor or Slytherin. Cause like sometimes I'm the good guy and sometimes I'm the bad guy. And maybe that is a whole other episode. It's the yeah, black we could and white thinking. A whole, yes, that is, we, that is an episode we need to have. Okay. Well, I'm a Ravenclaw and I take great pride in being a Ravenclaw. 
Um, and I asked Tori, I made Tori take her sorting hat quiz on our first date. And I remember being like, you can be anything but a Hufflepuff. Just like, please do not be a Hufflepuff. Right. I was, she was like, why? And I was like, because they're cute and dumb. And then this girl is a freaking Hufflepuff. (laughs) Okay. Sarah, you don't even understand. One of Aaron's like best friends was at a bar one time and he like met this hot girl or whatever. And they were sitting there and the girl's like, you need to do this. You need to do this Harry Potter quiz. And he was like, what? And she's like, yeah, I'm not going to go home with you if you don't get whichever house it was. And he was like, you're, you're joking. Right. And she's like, no. And she sat there for like 45 minutes while he did this quiz. And he was like, I don't even know if I want this anymore. Like, (laughs) this is very strange. So I love that you are that person because we made fun of that girl for a year. No, that was a big deal to me. I was like anything but Hufflepuff and here it is. She's a Hufflepuff. Well, maybe that was the sign. Maybe that's why we're getting divorced. Oh my God. We have to edit this part out. Okay. Anyways, (laughs) back to mood swings. Anger is for sure the hardest. And I, I don't know about you, but I find it to be the most dangerous for me because I fully trust myself that when I am even in my most sad and most depressed moments, I'm not going to do anything that would risk my life. But when I'm really, really angry, like I just, I have a hard time trusting myself. Yeah, totally. And I, so neither Sarah or I want to feed into the stereotype that people with borderline are violent or dangerous or that you should be scared of them. Neither of us want to say anything like that. However, I for sure have violent tendencies and, or I used to have violent tendencies and I was definitely like fully a perpetrator of domestic violence when I was younger, like a hundred percent. There's no question about that. It, It was always taken out on family and not random people, but like, I definitely thought about hurting random people a lot when I was younger, but DBT really, really, really changed that for me. Like I don't think I'm a violent person at all anymore. And like, especially outwardly, like I think if anything, DBT taught me to like be internally violent as opposed to externally, which is better, but still something I need to work on. So yeah, I think the spiraling of emotions is just more frustrating than anything, mostly because it's really hard to stop. So even if you use all of your skills, it's just really, really, really hard to not be in that spot. So yeah, I definitely find that that's really frustrating. Like I think the only things that really help me get out of that spot are exercise and sleep, which I know Sarah referenced earlier. Yeah. I think like even with using all of my skills, I still sometimes cannot get my emotions back to like what a baseline or near baseline would look like for a person that doesn't have BPD. And so that's just really hard because like, I know one of the things that I felt is that it, 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 fe- I know this isn't true, but sometimes it feels like people cannot love me the same way that I love them because I just feel it so significantly or they just like, can't understand or identify with my anger because they just don't feel angry the same way that I do. Like I sometimes feel kind of alienated by my mood swings or just the severity of the emotions. So you said, I know this isn't true, but people won't know, like won't be able to feel love. Like I feel love to them. Do you actually think that's not true? Well, I don't know. 
There's moments I think it's true. And then there's moments I feel bad for thinking that it's true. So maybe I say that it's not true to cover up my guilt about that statement. But I mean, there's been very few times in my life where I felt like I'm receiving the kind of love that I'm capable of giving. That doesn't mean that I haven't received like kind, whole love. It's just not all encompassing. Yeah. I I totally would. When you said, I know it's not true. I was like, I don't know. I feel like it might be true. Like, cause I feel very similarly. Like I will love more intensely than anyone that I've ever met. I will also hate more intensely than anyone I've ever met or feel sad or anxious or whatever more than anyone I've ever met. So I don't know, like, so I don't want kids. And that's, I mean, I'm 27. Dude, I would be a terrible parent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's that. That's, that's part of it. hundred percent. But like one of the things that people always say when they're trying to like talk you into having kids is, oh, well, you're never going to know love until you have kids. And I'm always like, really bitch. Cause like, you're never going to know love until you have BPD. Like, don't tell me that I haven't experienced an emotion intensely because you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it truly is just like biological. Um, and also like, I'm really on the maladaptive humor tonight, but like, I think that I could be really successful with parenting. It would just take me so much more time and energy and effort to do so than a person that is more regulated. And so like, I make that joke saying I'd be a terrible parent. I wouldn't be a terrible parent, but it would just be so much work to try to parent with this particular mental illness. And I frankly don't want to. No, me neither. Not to mention the fact that you're likely to pass down traits to your kid. So both of you will be as potentially as dysregulated as the, the other. So and I like, I grew up in a household like that. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't want kids. Anyways, that's not, that's a whole other conversation. I know one of the things we were going to talk about, and you can dive in because you're so much better at DBT than I am, which is, you know, the difficulty in kind of naming the feelings when we're cycling on a, such a rapid basis. Yeah. I actually found this to be a really, really, really fascinating piece of DBT, And that is that people with borderline, generally speaking, actually have a harder time identifying and naming emotions than people without the disorder. And that may sound like kind of trivial, but it's actually not. So like Sarah and I have basically said four emotions in this entire episode. And I, we've been recording for a while now. So we've said anger, sad, joy, slash happy. And I've said anxiety, which I don't even know if that's an emotion, but anyways, like there's actually, you know, 15 types of sadness or whatever it is. Like there's grief, there's disappointment, there's loss, whatever you want to call it. Anger, there's like frustration, anger, irritable, all of these things. And like, because we think in black and white and because we experience such intense emotions, we have a really hard time identifying the like nuances of different emotions. And so one of the things you do in DBT, and I can't remember what module it's in, is you literally have like a list of emotions and it's probably like 50, 60 of them. And you like categorize them under like the ones that are similar. So like, oh, these are all anger and these are all in um, joy and these are all sad. And it's like such a strange thing to need to do, but it's actually really helpful. And so like, if you were to just like listen to this podcast and while you're listening to the rest of it, write down 
10 different words for sad, 10 different words for happy, 10 different words for angry. It would be really interesting to see how many you came up with, because I bet if you don't have BPD, it would be fewer than if you do. No, is that right? No, it would be more if you don't have BPD. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting. So when I was working with youth in crisis homes, we taught them the four main emotions, right? Happy, sad, angry, worried. I don't know. I can't remember. And that all of those emotions stem off from that, like you just said. But I never name my emotions. I always just go straight to the like, and it's generally like joy, anger, sadness. Like I just, those feel, I feel those so strongly and I can so easily label just those three that I sometimes forget to like look underneath them because they're so, they're so profound. Mm -hmm. But like, it is helpful to look underneath them if you can kind of get to that point because you're like, okay, well, I'm not angry. Like I'm not like livid, for example, I'm just irritated. You're irritating me. Stop irritating me. Right. Whereas look at how skilled you are. (laughs) I'm not pretending that I'm actually going to do this right now. I am not angry at this exact moment, but yeah, like it's, I don't know. It's so helpful to be able to kind of identify those. And I think it's really helpful to be able to communicate your emotions effectively. Right. So if I were to walk into the living room and say to Aaron, like, I'm livid right now, his reaction would be very different than if I went in and said, I'm irritated, even if I said them in the exact same tone. But if I just go in and say, I'm angry, he doesn't, he's like, okay, what's, what else is new? Like, (laughs) he doesn't know what, he doesn't know what to do with that information. Yeah. So I think it's just one of those things where like, it seems so trivial, but it's not. And I think nowadays people are teaching like emotional competency. I don't know if there's a better word for that, but in like social emotional learning. Thank you. Yes. Social emotional learning. And like, yeah, it sounds like a buzzword, but we didn't have that. So I'm, you know, I don't love buzzwords, but like, okay, fine, do it. That's awesome. And having the zones of regulation, I don't know if that's the same in the States where it's like red, yellow, green or whatever. Yeah. Can you imagine when you were five, if somebody taught you that it would be, it would change your life. Literally. I mean, we will have to do a whole episode on my like resentment around public schools. (laughs) I feel so much frustration and a big part of it is my career is mental health work and I freelance curriculum, right? So I literally spend like hours every week writing social emotional learning tools and lessons for elementary and middle schoolers, sometimes high schoolers. But I'm just like, when I'm writing these and especially the activities, if I had had those tools, I would have never waited until I was 23 to get diagnosed. Like my quality of life from 16 to now would have been completely different. Yeah. And you know what? Your emotions would have been validated when you were five. And that may have even prevented you developing borderline personality disorder at at the end. Like there's always going to be some combination of genetics and validating environment, whatever, but like being validated in the way you're feeling is a huge component of that huge, the biggest one, you know? And so that like, I try so hard to just like validate everybody's emotions. Like I can say, you know what, that's a super valid way of feeling. I don't necessarily feel that way, but I understand where you're coming from. Just that alone. Can you imagine if your parents said that to you? 
No, just even the like, wow, that sounds really hard. Yeah, like totally not suck it up. And, and so for me, it was like, and again, my parents did the best that they could with the very few skills that they had. Um, and I will always like fight for them and fight for that. Like they were not good at validating. No, nobody ever taught them how. So how could I expect them to have known how to validate me? But I was always met with like a ton of silence because my emotions were so significant that my parents didn't know what to do with them. And so what they thought was like neutral in being silent or just like making space for me to talk these things out actually was super invalidating because I needed like a verbal, yeah, you get to feel that. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. you can feel that. That's okay. Yeah. And nobody taught them that. So we can't blame them. But I think this is where like, as much as I don't want kids, I think in that sense, we would be really great parents because we would be able to say like, look, you are screaming your head off. I feel annoyed, but I understand that you're not getting something that you need. And I do, I honestly think that that is something, one of the best parts about living with borderline personality disorder is just, I feel empathy more than anybody I've ever met. And sometimes that really sucks, but I think that it does make us really great humans. Yeah. But like how many years of your life did you waste in relationships thinking that people could grow or change or adjust? (laughs) Oh, way too many, way too many. I really need to back off of thinking everyone is redeemable or I take that back. I can continue to believe that everyone is redeemable without thinking that I need to be witness to the redemption. Do you know what I'm saying? Like my empathy keeps me involved so much longer than I should ever be involved. Yeah. And I've had that used against me. I had an ex-boyfriend who was super, super emotionally abusive and terrible. And he called me like after we had kind of finally ended things and said like, Hey, I think that I might have psychosis. And I was, and I fell for it. I'm, I will never turn somebody down if they need me. And that is a significant problem in my life. Huge problem. I have an ex that literally we broke up five years ago and like, we'll still reach out around really significant things in their life. And it's hard for me. Cause it's like, how, I, how do I turn you away? If you're talking to me about like a close family member that died by suicide, but also like you have a partner, you have family, you have friends. Like I'm not your person. I can't be your person, but I don't know how to not, I don't know how to not be because I feel like such desire to love and care for people that is not appropriate. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I think also like we have to understand that that is completely exhausting. People get mad at me for not answering text messages. I get, I have like 300 unread messages right now. I'm sorry that I'm not answering your text message. I would love to answer your text message, but it is completely emotionally draining for me who is doing my own work constantly on my mental health to be answering every single message that comes in. And like, don't get me wrong, guys. I love your messages and like, they're fantastic, but there's only so many times that I can answer a phone call that says, Hey, I'm high on meth and I'm at Surrey central sky train station. I need you to come pick me up. Like I can't, I cannot do that and be healthy myself. And that's really hard to have that boundary. Yeah. It's a wild life. I wouldn't, I don't know if I would trade it. I wouldn't. I know you wouldn't. <laughs> Did I, I already you say wouldn't. that? 
Yeah. No, we've talked about this. You know, no, I wouldn't trade it because I know that my mental illness is what makes me a really good clinician. And that is like the purpose of my life and what I think that I'm here for. But like, I want under pe- other people to really understand it is truly super exhausting and we don't want or need anybody's like, I'm sorry, or pity or whatever, but please understand that we are constantly working through our own head all day long, trying to navigate a world that doesn't want to make space for the feelings that we have. It's so funny you say that because I remember vividly, I, so I took dialectical behavior therapy and it was a group setting. And I remember going and like, there was, let's say there's eight of us seven people had Red Bull in front of them every single time, like Wednesday at noon. And I remember sitting there at, I was like, what, 18, 19. And I was like, I wonder if this is because we're just completely exhausted by our emotions. I would love to do a research study on if people with borderline use caffeine to cope, because I seriously think that that's true. Oh my God, please let's do it. Yeah. Okay. CIHR, give us some money to do a study, but how much coffee do you drink every day? I, I could drink coffee at eight 30 and still be asleep at night. I mean, I'm currently drinking coffee. It's 6 PM and I nap every single day, every single yeah. day. I sleep more than anyone I know. Like I sleep more than people's babies. Literally the other day it was a weekend. And to be fair, I had a really weird week but like I went to sleep at like nine, woke up at 1030, was up for an hour and a half and then had a two hour nap. Yeah. It's exhausting to feel this much. And that was, that was a day where I was regulated. <laughs> like I wasn't even doing anything that was making me feel. I was literally like doing readings for school and getting bored, but like I still slept. I drink so much caffeine. <laughs> It is like, I a hundred percent have an addiction to caffeine and I, at this point in my life, don't care because it no. helps me function. Yeah. Girl, I quit smoking a pack a day and I'm currently eight days sober of alcohol. I am never going to stop drinking coffee. No, ever. I just, did I tell you that Aaron stopped drinking coffee? Like out of nowhere? I would not marry him. I legitimately am questioning my decision. I am so mad because now it's like obvious that I'm the problem right like because I used to make like you know three pots of coffee I get up at six he gets up at eight. Oh, the first pot of coffee is gone before he wakes up like guess it was him like I, I don't know but now he drinks no caffeine and I don't understand it like it's completely foreign to me I would I would not function which is I understand is completely problematic I don't think it's problematic but maybe that's another issue Yeah, but if it was like cocaine, you would think it was problematic. Right. And it's pretty much, one is socially acceptable and one is not. Mm -hmm. But I mean, alcohol is socially acceptable and it's- Until you're binge drinking and having sex with everybody and their mother like every night of the week. Their mother? I haven't heard these stories. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, that was an exaggeration, but- (laughs) I hope it's not an exaggeration because I would love to hear that the alcohol thing, like it's, it's not just when you're binge drinking, like you can drink, you know, two glasses of wine a night and like have a serious alcohol problem. That's like affecting your relationships and nobody bats an eye, but yeah, you know, you do cocaine once or you do heroin or whatever. Like it's, it's a problem. It's, it's one of those weird society things. It is. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I think the risk with caffeine is pretty low compared to alcohol and cocaine though. Right? Like, do you want to hear a really terrible story? I do. I love terrible my, stories. When my emotions got a hold of me. So we were going a couple of years ago to Leavenworth in the States. And I had been having like weird, have you been to Leavenworth? Cause you look really excited. It's so beautiful. It really is. Yeah. We were going for Oktoberfest and it was really fun. And, um, but I was really pissed that day because of situations that had happened in the morning. And I had also been having like weird heart problems, like really, really, really racing heart. Like I have an Apple watch. My heart rate would literally be 210 for like 45 minutes. And I was like, that's like dying. Yeah, I know. I was literally like laying there and it would be like 210. It was crazy. So I had had to get all this like heart halter monitors for two weeks and like you can't shower properly and it's this whole thing. And um, anyway, so we get down to Leavenworth and like one of the things that my cardiologist said was you need to stop drinking excessive amounts of caffeine. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to stop drinking excessive amounts of caffeine, but I'll like limit my caffeine intake. So for whatever reason, I was like really angry. So out of spite, to nobody because Aaron wasn't mad at me, but I was just like mad at the world. I go to the gas station and buy like three liters of Red Bull. And I'm like, I'm just going to give myself a heart attack. Things like that where it's like, Lori, you're literally only hurting yourself right now. And you're not going to have a heart attack. You're just (laughs) going to feel like shit. Yeah, totally. I actually never drank them, but like, I remember, like I, Aaron was pissed and I was like, I'm going to buy them anyways. And it was like, Lori, you're so dumb. It, that was like three years ago. And I finally got rid of that. Red Honestly, like, you might as well have just bought a four loco. Oh yeah. They don't have those up here. Good. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure they like are illegal here actually. Like, I don't even think you can bring them across the border. Yeah, no, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible. Do they still uh, sell those in the States? Yeah. But I think they did something like a few years back where they took out like the certain amount of caffeine or whatever in them. So they're not as bananas. Yeah, because those, like, literally kill people. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, so we should all limit our caffeine, figure out how to regulate our emotions, and none of you have bipolar disorder. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Long story short, thank you for putting up with this episode because it it was a lot. Honestly, though, the bipolar disorder thing is not a joke, and we will have an episode specifically about bipolar disorder and borderline and how they differ and how the misdiagnosis is so common. So if you're interested in that and you don't want us to just be making jokes about it the entire time, please do tune into that episode. Uh, it'll probably be in a couple of months. Yeah. And actually, have you ever met someone that is diagnosed with both BPD and bipolar disorder? Because I've always like really struggled with that comorbid diagnosis. That's co-occurring diagnosis. Yeah. I don't know if I know like a close friend with both of those, but I've definitely like seen people identify as having both of those diagnoses and I have a big issue with it as well. Like I, I mean, I guess you probably could because you could be having like your, let's say your baseline is like a zero and your manic episode is a 50. You could be like for two weeks or whatever it is with a standard deviation a around 50 as opposed to around zero or around negative 50 which is your depressed state but I I feel like that's a weird misdiagnosis like I feel like it's gonna have to be one or the other but people people identify with both so it's not for me to say yeah and I've seen 
clients, I haven't diagnosed them with both, but I've seen clients historically that have had both diagnoses on their medical records. And it's just hard for me to imagine sustaining one's emotional state for a long period of time. Yeah. And I think for me, because they're so misdiagnosed so often, I'm always like hesitant about that. Right. Because like, it's easy for people to like diagnose people with bipolar when they're not and when it's borderline and they just either don't want to give them a borderline diagnosis because they don't want it to be on their medical record and the stigma to mess them up or they don't know enough about borderline so they give a bipolar disorder diagnosis but like you kind of need to know the medication you're going to be taking for either of those disorders is going to be significantly different and like you don't want to have a misdiagnosis and misdiagnosis for borderline I mean we could talk for six years about misdiagnosis of borderline but you can't heal in my opinion you can't heal until you know what's wrong and so I I just it always makes me so sad when I see people with misdiagnosis whether or not it's like you were misdiagnosed as borderline or you were misdiagnosed as bipolar and you're actually borderline like whichever it is I just always feel so sad for those people because you've just you need to know what the root cause is. Well, the other part of it too, is the way that you safety plan around bipolar disorder is going to be very different than the way that you safety plan around borderline personality disorder. And that's one of the things I don't know about you, Lori, but for years I carried a handwritten safety plan on a, like a post-it note in my wallet that I wrote on a, you know, intensive outpatient program seven years ago. Mm. And it was always the same safety plan and it was always going to work for me. But I know that that would be very different than a person with bipolar disorder. Yeah. I would be really curious to know the stats of people with diagnosed bipolar disorder and self-harm, because that's like such a core diagnose or diagnostic criteria of borderline. And I can see where, like, I know like suicide in people with bipolar can be pretty high when you're coming out of a depressive stage, like when you're like shifting between the two, but I don't know about self-harm. Like, I feel like I haven't really heard that. It's more like the dying by suicide part is like super problematic, but less so like the kind of up and down self-harm. We'll have to do some research and maybe have a couple different people with bipolar disorder on the pod, because I really want to do some, I really want to understand the perspective of staying in a like longer emotional state for like a set period of time, what that's like. Cause I, I truly can't say, I know what it's like to stay in a state longer than like 15 or 20 minutes. Even if there's been weeks of my life where I've consistently been depressed, there's still moments of profound joy in each Mm -hmm. day. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is like, I can definitely have moments, sorry, I can have days of like more depression than not, but there, yeah, there's still that shift, which is strange. And like, potentially like neither of us have bipolar disorder. So like, maybe there is that shift within a manic or depressive stage. Like there's no way that it's, you're just feeling like this exact same level of mania for two weeks. Like that's just not possible as a human being, I would think. So we should definitely find someone. If you have either bipolar disorder or both, you should definitely reach out to me. Actually, I was talking to somebody who's listening to the podcast and she said that her, she has bipolar and her partner has borderline. And so they're finding the podcast really interesting because 
they're finding a lot in common with both of them. So that could be a really interesting perspective as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay, guys. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the podcast and putting up with us as always. Your love and support means just the world to us. And um, we'll see you next time. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.